0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love, and live for Jesus.
1: Here at church, we believe the Bible is God's word to his people, designed to help us know. Love and live for Him. Today's Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Please have your Bibles open as we hear God speak. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not but done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you are buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all for our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgrace them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. One of my
0: favorite parts of the Bible uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 55. Let, Let me read it for you. It's absolutely amazing, especially on a day like this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, hallelujah. On a day like today, we celebrate the reality that he is risen. We love Easter Sunday, don't we? Because Jesus' resurrection gives us hope beyond the grave. It tells us that death will not have the last word. And it tells us that all our tears, all our cries, And all our mourning, it's all but for a moment. The sun has risen, and one day we will too. You see, many people seem to think that the cross, it was God's defeat, and then now, three days later, we celebrate the resurrection as his success, that Jesus' death was somehow the tragedy, and that his rising is the victory. But I want us to see today that the cross was not God's defeat, no far from it. Uh, in it that classic book, The Cross of Christ. I want you to hear what John Stott writes. Quote: We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won, and the resurrection was victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Or let me put it in another way: the cross is the victory. The resurrection is the triumph. The cross is the victory and the resurrection is the triumph. You see, at the cross, Jesus didn't just bear God's wrath and forgive our sins. He did that. But he did so much more. No, there in his death, he defeated the devil. He destroyed death and he dispelled the darkness forever. And then, On the third, at break of dawn, in his resurrection, he rose, he vindicated his victory, he completed our redemption, and he promised our eternal future. You see, friends, the cross is the victory, and the resurrection is the triumph. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to take a few steps back. I want us to go back to the cross and to see the victory of God. And then I want us to celebrate the triumph of the resurrection. That's what we're going to do. The cross is the victory, and then the resurrection is the triumph. Well, let me ask, when you think of a victory, what comes to mind? What comes to, It might depend on who you are, what you do. If you're an athlete, like I know some of you are, or some of you might like to think you are, you, you think of the last leg of the race, right? When you speed up pass your competitors and cross the finish line to the roar of the crowds. If you're you're more like me, a bit of a a nerd, and you like the uh, politics of a federal election, you think of that moment that the votes are finally counted, the majority is in, and the new government is finally declared. Or, if you're a soldier... Like some of you might be, or not. You think of a battle where you finally disarm your enemy, destroy their weapons, and defeat them with a decisive blow. A soldier or a gamer, one of the two. You see, whatever it may be, when we think of a victory, I can promise you, you don't think of death, do you? At least not of your own. And yet, somehow in his own death, Jesus defeats death and he defeats the devil. It's actually not hard to see, right, that our world is gripped by the forces of evil, that our world is shadowed in darkness. The conflicts in Afghanistan and Ukraine, they're a sober reminder that evil is real. You don't have to be a Christian, but there's no other word to describe it. Bring it closer to home when you think about domestic violence or child abuse. We we live in a dark and even... Even a demonic world. See, you might not be a Christian, but you don't have to be one to realize that there is evil all around us. The Apostle John writes in 1 John five eighteen that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes that Satan is the ruler of the power of the air. He is active and at work in our world. And I don't want to scare you, but the devil is a danger to us. We read in the Scriptures in at least three ways, in at least three ways. And let me give them to you now quickly. Number one, the devil tempts us to sin. He tempts us to sin. The Apostle Matthew calls him the tempter. But I wonder if you realize that Satan's temptation only has power because it feeds off our our sinful nature. He's not actually tempting us to do something we don't want to do. He's tempting us to do actually what our sinful hearts already long to do. He's appealing to what's already deep inside of us. 1 John 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride in our possessions. Well, we don't like to admit it, do we? But we don't sin because the devil made me do it. We sin because we love it. And all Satan has to do is tempt us to do what we already love to do. He tempts us to sin. Secondly, Satan accuses us of guilt. You might not have read the prophet Zechariah, but in Zechariah 3, we're taken into the scene of a courtroom. And in that courtroom, we find Satan, the accuser, literally means the accuser. And what's he doing? He stands before the angel of the Lord as a judge. And he's accusing the high priest Joshua. He's reminding him of his sin. Judging him for his sin. Condemning him for his sin. And we all know that feeling, don't we? That feeling of when our sin is brought to mind, our past that we cannot escape. You know the worst part of it all? Satan is entirely right. That's the worst part of Zechariah 3, because you read verse 3 and it says that Joshua is dressed with filthy clothes. He's stained by sin. It sounds strange to say, but Satan accuses us of guilt, but he's entirely correct, because we know in our heart of hearts, don't we, we are entirely guilty. We are already guilty sinners. All Satan has to do is to accuse us of the guilt that's already there. Satan tempts us to sin. He accuses us of guilt. But thirdly, he holds us in the fear of death. He holds us in the fear of death. I remember a number of years ago when my grandmother was still alive, I'd visit her in an aged care home. And if you've sadly been to an aged care home, you'll know that it's full of death and it's full of fear. And Hebrews 2.15 tells us why. The devil holds the power of death. He holds us in slavery all our lives by the fear of death. But again, I wonder if you realize that, I hate to say it, but the Bible shows us as sinners, we actually do deserve death. Without Jesus, we're actually destined to die. We're all under the curse of Genesis 2. You will certainly die. Romans 5 reminds us just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way desperate to all people because all sinned. You see, friends, we're already deserving of death. And all Satan has to do is to make us scared of the destiny and the faith that's already ours. I wonder if you realize that in each and every case, Satan's power depends on our sin. He, he tempts us to the sin that we already have. He accuses us of the guilt that we already deserve. He holds us in fear of the death that's already our future. So if God is going to destroy the power of Satan, then he must first deal with our problem of sin. Does that make sense? If God is going to destroy the power of Satan, he must first deal with our problem of sin, for our sin is the root problem. He must remove our guilt in order to destroy our death. And friends, I want to tell you, in the cross of Christ, that's exactly what he does. He deals with our fundamental problem. He bears our sin on the cross. He dies as our substitute. He absorbs God's wrath. He dies the death that we should have died. It sounds strange, but in that moment when Jesus died, he took away Satan's one and only weapon. He took away our sin. Colossians 2.15 says this wonderful cosmic picture of what Jesus achieved on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. But I want you to notice how he secures that victory, how he defeats the devil. It's back in verse 14. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Chris, can you see what's going on here? Can you see the logic of what's happening? On the outside, the world sees Jesus hanging on a cross. They see a man beaten, bruised and scorned. They see a man helpless and publicly publicly disgraced in his suffering and his death. And yet in that very moment, Jesus expunges our record of sin. He cancels our record of debt. And he doesn't do that by simply pressing the delete button as easy as that would be. No, that would just be unjust to do so. He cancels our sin by taking it on himself. By nailing it to the cross by bearing God's wrath and carrying our judgment. But can you see it doesn't stop there, right? After paying our debts, after cancelling our sin, Jesus disarms the rules of our world. He takes away Satan's one and only weapon, which is our sin. Because without our sin, do you notice, Satan's temptation has no power. Without our sin, his accusations have no basis Without our sin, his fearful grip is broken because Jesus died the death so that death might die at the cross. That is the wisdom of the cross. That on the outside, Jesus was publicly shamed, publicly embarrassed, publicly disgraced. But it's as if he laughed and said, no, the trick's on you. I'm disgracing the powers of darkness. I'm destroying the power of the devil. I'm breaking the foothold and the stranglehold of the devil on all people. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of suffering. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. I just love what Hebrews 2.14 says. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Friends, over the last two years, surely hasn't our world been gripped by the fear of death? It's been the greatest case study, hasn't it, to see just how afraid of dying we are. Haven't we personally known or even ourselves been people who are so gripped by a fear of death? We're willing to trash worldwide economies, move and spend, you know, as much money as we need to spend in order to save as many lives as we can save. Now, no one wants to die. That's natural on one level. And we shouldn't be reckless with our lives and we we especially shouldn't be reckless with the lives of other people around us. But Jesus died to take away our fear of death. And he died to take away our fear of the devil as well. One thing that always worries me, not just here, but especially in, in countries like Malaysia where my family is from, people are terrified of evil spirits. We're terrified that the evil spirits will possess us or oppress us. We live our whole lives in fear. We set up shrines in our home to protect our homes from external spiritual forces. But I want you to know that when Jesus died, he broke the power of evil. He disarmed the devil by taking away his one and only weapon, by taking away our sin. Don't somehow think, oh, Jesus versus Satan. Who will win? I'm not quite sure. No, Satan is can never win, and he will never win, for his power was broken at the cross of Christ. You see, in his own death, Jesus once and for all crushed the head of the serpent. For the moment when Jesus died, death died. And the moment that death died, Satan was defeated. It's as if we can now stare death in the face. We can stare the devil in the face and laugh. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. He's mocking death. It's as if he's looking at him saying, you have no power here. You can't accuse me because of my sin. You can't shame me because of my guilt. You can't condemn me because of my past. It's all been nailed to the cross of Christ. Now, friends, there are this worldly consequences of our sin. If I sin against one of my brothers or sisters and I repent of my sin, Jesus will forgive me. He promises to forgive me. He's nailed that to the cross. But in this world, that other person is still hurt, sometimes deeply hurt. And our relationship might never be the same again in this world. That great theologian, not really, Agatha Christie, once wrote old sins. Cast long shadows. Old sins cast long shadows. And don't we feel it? They do. But Jesus guarantees that shadows are all they will ever be. Our sin and our past have no power over us. And as our accuser, neither does the devil. Romans 8.1 assures us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that. Because for so often we live with the weight of our past sin and our shame. I quote this hymn to no end, and we sing this hymn at our church quite a bit, but you know it well, don't you? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward. I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. That great period, and John Owen once described the cross as the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And if death died at the cross, then that's exactly where the devil was defeated. You know, in Zechariah 3, we saw that first courtroom, didn't we? Satan comes, accuses us of our sin, and we are dressed in robes stained by our sin, and we can't escape it, and we just feel so unclean. And the worst part about that moment is that when Satan accuses us, we say, he's right, he's right. I just can't deny my sin. That is not the last courtroom that you need to stand in. There is another courtroom that we will one day stand in. And that courtroom is found in Revelation chapter 12. And there, just like in Zechariah, we find Satan, the accuser. What's he doing? What he's always done. Accusing us before our God day and night. But here I want you to notice the difference. Our accuser has been thrown down. He's been conquered. He's been defeated. And look at what has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. That in Jesus' death, Satan was disarmed. And all his accusations have no power over us anymore. No, 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 no. We think that the cross was the defeat and the resurrection is the victory. That's not true. The cross is the victory. You know, when the soldiers knelt in front of Jesus and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. When they put a crown of thorns on his head and dressed him in a purple robe pretending that he's some humiliated, pathetic king. Oh, they were more correct than they could have ever imagined. Because it was in his shameful death that Jesus reigned as the glorious king. You see, for this king, his throne was a cross and his crown was made of thorns. You see, friends, in his death, Jesus defeated death. He destroyed the devil and he dispelled the darkness forever. The cross is the victory and the resurrection, the triumph. You see, friends, if you're a runner, right, if the cross then is the moment you step over the finish line, then I want to tell you the resurrection is the moment when you stand on that podium and receive your trophy. If the cross is the moment when the election result is declared on that night, the resurrection is the moment the new government is sworn in. If the cross is the moment when the pardon is given to the prisoner, then the resurrection is the moment when you and I as that very prisoner, when we walk free. You can't divide the rugged cross and the empty tomb. But what the rugged cross gives, the empty tomb guarantees. What the rugged cross gives, the empty tomb guarantees. Let let me show you how, before anything else, the resurrection is a vindication of God's victory on the cross. It's a vindication of God's victory on the cross. It publicly proves that Jesus really is who he said he is and that he really did what he said he would do. That The resurrection is the historical evidence that in his death, Jesus really did defeat death. He really destroyed the devil and he really dispelled the darkness. I just love 1 Corinthians 15. You should read it today. Paul writes... Rather honestly, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in the bay, And so is your faith. Verse 17, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith, he's talking to you right now, fellow Christian, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If Jesus' body is still in the ground, friends, we are wasting our time. Go and enjoy your public holiday. There are far better things to do with your time than sit here and listen to God's supposed word. The Bible is almost too honest, isn't it? It almost makes a Christian just a little bit uncomfortable. It's as if Paul goes, look, let me level with you. I'll admit it. If you want to deconstruct Christianity, if you want to tear this joint down, here, here's where you should aim. Take your best shot. Here's our Achilles heel. Here's the pressure point where you should put. Because the resurrection is an historical claim. It's a claim awkwardly that you can interrogate. A claim that you can investigate. If you read the Bhagavad Gita of the Hindu gods, you'll, you'll read stories of elephants dancing in the clouds. You can't interrogate that. You can imagine it. You can't interrogate it. But if we're saying that, no, Jesus walked this earth, he died a physical death, he rose physically from the grave. Well, you can now catch a plane and go there to where he walked and investigate it for yourself. And it's as if Paul says, look, mate, if you can disprove the resurrection, if you can produce the body as it were, then I'll admit, this whole gospel, it's all a lie." But let's make a deal here. You can't. If you can't produce the body, if, right, just thought experiment for a moment, if the resurrection really is true, shoes on the other foot now. Jesus really is who he said he is, the Son of God. And he really did what he said he did. He, he died. He forgave our sins. He defeated the devil. He destroyed the power of death. Let's make a deal. What do you say? Can you understand then just how significant it is that Paul then writes in verses 3 to 8, look at it here, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And as I read this, I want you to count how many times he says the word appeared. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he, let's play bingo, appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Did you get that? I'm not handing out prizes today. Not once. Not twice. Not thrice, which is a real word, but four times. He says that the risen Lord Jesus has appeared. Why? Because he wants you to know that the resurrection is not a myth. The resurrection is true. And let me tell you, if it's true, it changes everything. Because if the resurrection is true, then guess what? Our faith is true. Our forgiveness is true. Our salvation is true. Our freedom is true. Our hope is true. Our eternity is true. Because Jesus really rose. Because Jesus really died. And because Jesus really died, well, that means death really died. The devil is really defeated. Evil is really eradicated. And the darkness is really dispelled. Christian, if, do you get this? We can be confident that not only did Jesus take our sin to the grave, he took the devil to the grave. He conquered every evil spirit, every wicked power. The resurrection is the vindication of God's victory on the cross. But it's more than even just that. Glorious though it is. The resurrection is the completion of Christ's work on the cross. Romans 6, it paints this beautiful picture. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. Let me take a step back, right? Jesus didn't just die as our substitute, he died as our representative. So in one sense, right, when Jesus died on the cross, we weren't there, right? He he took our place. But in another sense, when Jesus died, we were there. We died with him. Now that sounds like terrible news, but let me tell you it's the greatest news of all because it means that our old selves, our past baggage, our sinful record, the lies and mistakes, the sins we try to run from, but we feel like we can never escape. They're all buried in the ground. They're gone. It's over. It's finished. That's good news. But let me tell you the bad news. If Jesus stays in the ground, then so do we. If Jesus doesn't live, our old selves might have died, but our new selves cannot live. We we might have been saved from the wrath of God, but we won't be able to enjoy this new life in Christ. See, the question isn't just the minimalistic one, right? How can I escape hell? How can I escape God's judgment, as important though they are? There are bigger questions. How can I be reconciled with God? How, How can I be adopted by God? How can I enjoy the love of God? How can I receive every spiritual blessing from God? Unless Jesus is alive and able to impart them to us. Did you see the logic? If our old selves are to die, then Jesus must have died. But if our new selves are to rise, then Jesus must have risen. And he has. Ephesians 1.20 says that God exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead. But not just raising him from the dead, but by seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus rose from the grave ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And right now, he sits there to give us a whole new life. Do you realize what that means? It's so much better news than we're saved from the judgment. It means that we're now free to to live the life that we were always meant to live. We're, We're now free to live a life pleasing to the Lord. We weren't just released from prison. No, we're set free. Our pardon was given at the cross. In the resurrection, we walk free out of jail. And now with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, we can walk freely home. Home to the Father. Home to the Son. Home to the Spirit. Home to here home to one another. The resurrection completes Christ's work on the cross for us. But I want you to show you, just like every second-hand carpet salesman, but even better and genuine, it gets even better. Because the resurrection is the promise of our eternal future. Now, this man's sitting here right now, and he don't know I'm going to say this. I was supposed to call him the other last night and ask his permission. We, we normally do this, but I'll call them out all the same. Uh, he doesn't realize, oh, he may realize this, three, this. This day, this day three years ago, Johnson, Sue, wasn't a Christian, actually. And he was sitting in our Easter Sunday service. We were preaching through 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. Good chapter. A few days before that, he sent me a, a message. I scrolled through Facebook chat endlessly trying to find it. Three years of scrolling, you get RSI. Hey Adam, I was hoping to meet up sometime soon when you're free to chat. I'm still struggling with believing in a God. And I don't think I've made any progress with this for a while. So I sit there, right? Multiple sermons to prepare. Easter, worst week for every preacher. Get a message like this and you think, this is the end. He's going to walk away from it all. He's going to say no to Jesus. I sent a message back. I said, hey, mate, look, I've got to get through Easter. Why don't we catch up after? He may not remember this or what happened in the conversation. We eventually did catch up the week after Easter Sunday. And he'll remember, I sat there, and he said to me something like this. He said, Adam, over the last week, everything just came together. In a way that the conversation I'm about to have with you is very different from the one I was planning to have with you. I get it. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose, one day we'll rise with him. I'm sitting there. What? Johnson's now a faithful Christian and a beloved brother here at our church. The resurrection matters. That's what he said, right? Because Jesus rose, one day we'll rise with him. It's the promise of our eternal future. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first among many. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, the resurrection, it's eternity brought forward. It's saying that on the final day, God will raise all of us from the dead, but he's he's taken one resurrection. And he's brought it forward into human history. And that's the resurrection of his son. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the prototype. He's the model of what all of us will one day be. We are sown in corruption. But we will be raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor. Raised in glory. Sown in weakness raised in power, sown a natural body, weak and frail like ours, one day raised a spiritual body with a body like the Lord Jesus. And just as we are born the image of the man of the dust, one day we also will bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, friends, the resurrection promises that though we may die, yet we will live. Not just spiritually, Not just in our hearts, but physically, bodily, tangibly. In the Apostles' Creed, we declare, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Why can we say that? We can only say that because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus' body. And his resurrection is a foretaste of ours. One day, all of us here will be perfect like him. A few weeks ago in the uh, very first sermon that we did in this series, I told the story of a pastor in Brisbane whose son for a while was experiencing severe foot pain. And you might remember what happened, that the boy was found to have a cancer in his foot. A cancer which does not respond to chemotherapy. He met with the doctors. The doctors pretty much said to him, life or limb." So they amputated his leg and they saved his life. What I didn't tell you was what happened over the next few months. You see, a few months later during a regular checkup, the doctors were doing a scan and they found the very same cancer not in his leg, if they amputated, but in his lungs. I don't have to tell you what the prospects of recovery for that boy are. They're not good. He's 14 years old. 14. And his dad was saying, he goes, I just want the opportunity to... Read the Bible with my son. Do just the starters with him. Help him understand the hope that he has in Jesus. Do you know what Jesus promises that young boy? Do you know what the resurrection means to that young 14-year-old boy? It's It's as if the risen Lord Jesus comes to him and says, Mate, one day, You'll live again. But on that day, you'll more than live. You'll walk. You'll run. And when you do, you'll speak the words of that wonderful Christian athlete, Eric Liddell, right? You have one leg amputated in this world and will come to see me sooner than you thought. You'll have your full perfected body. And you'll declare to the new creation, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Someone said that in the gospel, in Christian life and ministry and in church, we're all preparing each other for death. We're all preparing one another to die. But don't shed it here or do, but know that the sun will rise. For our sun has risen. And the resurrection is the promise of our eternal future. We hate our world, don't we, at the best of times? It's broken, ruled by the devil, overrun by evil, plagued by cancer, sickness, depression, and death. But many of us, every day is a struggle. But I want you to see in Jesus' own death, he defeats the power of the devil. He dispels the darkness. He eradicates evil once and for all. And he did all of that by taking our sins away, the root of all evil, and the only weapon that Satan ever had. The cross is the victory. The resurrection is the triumph. For in his resurrection, Jesus vindicates himself that he is who he said he is. He's done what he said he has done. In his resurrection, he completes his work on the cross and gives us a new life of freedom and joy. And in his resurrection, he promises us, and he promises that young boy, and all the people in your life who know, who you know are suffering, that one day, we will be as he is risen, redeemed, restored. It's as if on this day, the risen Lord Jesus looks at us and says, arise, arise, children of God, a new life awaits, holy and righteous. Death shall be defeated. The devil shall be destroyed. There shall be a new day, a glorious day for the Son has risen. Let me pray. You raised your son from the grave to give us a hope beyond the grave. And so we hold on to that so dearly, knowing that our only hope in life and death is the risen Lord Jesus and the eternal life that is found in him. These things we ask and pray. In the sake, for the sake, and in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.